As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. And over the next short while, they both embark on a killing spree. Seven women in seven weeks. Our last four of them were in six days, so it was quite a frenzy. Jeff Plunkett has spent most of his life working for the Australian Department of Defence as a researcher, historian, 
and as an expert in chemical warfare. As a sideline, he's written books exposing some deeply unsettling facts about a number of Australia's most notorious crimes. In 2018, he released The Whiskey A Go Go Massacre, in which he reinvestigated the 1973 firebombing of a nightclub in Brisbane's Fortitude Valley. Fifteen people died in the attack, and two men, James Finch and John Stewart, were convicted and jailed. Rumours of impropriety by Queensland police in their investigation of the crime persisted throughout the years, though. And eventually, Jeff Plunkett gained access to files that had been sealed for decades. Files Queensland police intended to be sealed for decades more. His subsequent book, The Whiskey A Go Go Massacre, raised questions serious enough to compel the Queensland State Government to reopen the coronial inquest into the fire in 2021. And that inquiry is ongoing. This is Australian True Crime, recorded at The Hub Australia. In his new book, Jeff investigates the mythology around a case that's often bizarrely overlooked in Australian crime reporting, despite its historical and cultural significance. The book is called Death Row at Truro, and it tracks the seven-week serial killing spree of Christopher Worrell and James Miller in 1970s Adelaide. Jeff Plunkett begins this conversation by telling us why spending years on this story was so important to him. There's many reasons that I wrote the book. The first one is Chris Worrell and James Miller killed as many people as it's over my lap. Yet these two are completely unknown out, out of the state. Secondly, this is Australia's most prolific case of serial sexual homicide. So I wanted to examine what that was and why it might occur. Thirdly, and probably the most important thing I was trying to do was look at the victims. Um, true crime books are normally about the bad guys and the bad things they do. Uh, victims were obviously normally just names, uh, or in this case, literally a bag of bones lying out at the killing fields of Truro. And that's not right. You know, these were seven women who were caught up in an extraordinary crime. It was an extraordinary fact that even though seven women went missing within seven weeks within the same area, which is Adelaide's CBD, it, it didn't raise any alarm bells with the police because of the missing persons axiom. So these girls were branded as people that ran away because they had a, a temper, they were pregnant, a tip with a boyfriend and so on. And that was completely wrong. Even a cursory look at their lives, you would have known that not to be true. Two years after the bodies were discovered and there was an understanding of what had happened, the, the blame game still continued. You know, there were editorials at the time. You know, the youth of today, what do you expect? They were completely innocent. And that was something I was trying to get across. So if we can backtrack from there to where these two people met, can you tell us about that? I mean, it's always fascinating, I think, when two people kill together. How do these people find each other? Chris Worrell and James Miller met in Adelaide Jail. At that time, Chris Worrell was 20. So if we backtrack why Worrell was in prison, he did have a violent streak with some of his early girlfriends in his early teens. One describes going to a party with them. They stopped up in Adelaide Hill somewhere um, just for a break before they went to the party. Worrell got out of control, so much so that she broke a beer bottle on the door and just held it against them, you know, I'm going to have to defend myself when he calmed down. So 
there's probably three things intersecting in his young life. Um, one is psychopathy, which is a word that's bandied around a lot. I don't know that a lot of people really understand what it means. It's certainly associated with crime and with serial sexual homicide, which is what we're talking about. One study showed that 97% of the offenders were clinically psychopaths. It's a behavioural disorder. It's, it's not an illness, which a lot of people think. So there's actually 20 traits. Most people probably know lack of remorse and empathy, but you know they're manipulative, impulsive, parasitic, uh, callous, irresponsible, impulsive, uh, liars, um, promiscuous. So that ties in with all the sex we're talking about with Worrell and superficially charming. How do they become psychopaths? They talk about these days there's two variants. One's a primary one, which is genetic, so it can be strongly to moderately inheritable. Those people have low anxiety and they they don't have much trauma that we or abuse that we know. Now the, the other ones are secondary ones and they're exposed to a lot of abuse in their childhoods. Um, this is where most of the known serial killers originate from. There was a stepfather from an early age. Chris Worrell definitely did not like him. He told Miller, Mrs. Worrell told Miller that he himself, Chris, um, was a product of a rape. Was that true? I mean, the problem was, as I said, Worrell was a typical psychopath. He was a prolific liar, so that might have just been a story to impress people. Um, in early 1974, there was two incidents. The first one happened outside an army barracks where he basically kidnapped a woman at knife point on a telephone box, um, put her in a car. He actually had an accomplice with him at that stage. He drove off to another location. Um, coincidentally, it was next to a factory. <clears throat> the factory alarm went off. There was quickly a police car on the scene. Um, they put two and two, two together. They thought maybe that the people in that car had broken into the factory. So he walked over to the car uh, and there was an open window and he asked you know, who they were and why they were there. Now, Chris Worrell was the only one who talked. He actually had a knife to the side of the woman who had abducted her, told her just before the policeman got to the car that she talked. He would kill her um, and she believed him. And if you look at what happened a few years later, it was quite believable. The policeman accepted the reasoning and walked off. Worrell drove off uh, to another location and he actually let the woman out because he got spooked. Then we go forward to April 1974. Worrell picked up a hitchhiker at night. There's a lot of small talk. He he was very sociable with everyone he met, basically, women and men. Very flirtatious and very charming, wasn't he? Completely. Um, superficially charming, which is a psychopathic trait. Mm. She had no reason to worry about him. He was utterly unthreatening to everyone that he met. Um, he said that this was towards Ed Edwardstown, that there was a radiator leak, so he stopped at a a station, petrol station. He fit around the back and got a knife and told her he tied her up and attempted to rape her and it didn't it didn't work. 
to our best knowledge, to my best knowledge, the 1974 abduction was the first one, and then the attempted break was the next one. I'll just go back to the early one, if you don't mind, because Detective James Munro, who I interviewed, he had a tip that Warrell might be involved. So we actually ran, ran to the place. Now, he warmed to her mother, and his initial impressions of Chris were favourable, clean-cut, you know, sociable and so on. But then he quickly, you know, he'd been doing this a long time, that there was something really off by this individual, um, completely cold. He actually turned, he told me, turned to the person he was with, the other detective, and said, this guy could actually kill someone down the track. That's really interesting because obviously because he liked his mum and you would assume that Worrell would have been bunging on the famous charm and he said that he thought he was clean cut and all of that and yet he still got this vibe. Completely, just complete arrogance. Um, he just dismissed it. Um, again, to me, that's a psychopathic trait. Mm. Um, he, this is James, said he put in multiple reports saying this guy should have psychiatric, you know, assessment. Um, it never, never happened. Um, yeah, I um, I feel like he was really ahead of his time, Jeff. Yes. The detective. When I was reading, I thought this guy's really like years ahead with what his observations. Completely, completely. This is 1974. I mean, even the term serial killer didn't come until about 1980. When you say the rape didn't work the second time, uh. When when I read that, I was wondering, what does that mean? He he couldn't penetrate. Basically, he, you know, he had this fantasy of sex and violence, and we know that he spent a lot of time and a lot of money buying extreme pornographic magazines. Because back in those days, obviously, there was only no internet or so on, so that was you're on the avenue of getting them. Um, so back in those days, there were titles like Roped and Raped, Hogtied, and they're all self-explanatory, and there was True Crime Detective um, magazines, which were extremely graphic. He bought them and he carried them around in this famous trunk, which was quite a big one, a really heavy trunk, which was a metre wide. Um, he had it in the car. Um, if he stayed at girlfriend's places, he used to drag it in there. One of the things he had in there, because um, it was found when he crashed the car, was 30 of these magazines with his name on all of them. There was Pride and Joy. His name on them. Oh, I mean, these don't these magazines don't cause people to kill, no. but they can de-inhibit. And an example I gave is Dennis Radar. I made a lot of comparisons with him, the BTK bone torture kill killer in the US. He he talked about seeing a magazine. And the way this woman was tied, turned him on. And the acts that were depicted in the magazine turned him on. So he had actually attempted that on one of the victims. But victims don't behave like your fantasy. No. Because they don't want to be part of a serial killer's world. So, and that's probably part of the reasons why the, his 1974 rape failed. Because she wasn't behaving the way as he had imagined. You know, Ted Bundy said the fantasy was always more stimulating the actual action to be attempted. So going back to the Adelaide jail, so why Miller was in there? Miller 
part of a large family. He was a lot older. He got into trouble quite young, stealing from, this is even as a, in primary school, stealing from Kmart and that sort of joint. Age 11, this is James Miller, he fled home. He was sent to the girls' boys' reformatory, which was pretty infamous. It was almost more a prison than a reformation home. Um, he was released and he was he stole, he stole some stuff and he was sent back to McGill, they said till age 18, although he was released after about a year. He did stuff like car car theft. He ended up in Adelaide jail, obviously, with Chris as I've described. So James Miller was homosexual. When he first saw he describes in detail in the book when he first saw Chris in the prison, he was smitten with him basically to my mind, wanted a sexual relationship straight, straight away. They became firm friends, ended up in the same cell together. Um, they did pranks. They literally became brothers, so they cut their wrists together. I mean, I described them as a opposite ends of a magnet. They were completely different. Warrell was young, attractive, very sociable. Um, Miller was obviously older. He was socially inept. Um, and that's confirmed by the testimony from his family and everyone else. Um, and the girlfriends that he, just, these are the girlfriends that Worrell didn't kill, um, they, they were shadows of themselves. That's how they both described their relationship. And this is a remarkable thing, which no one had, in 45 years actually bothered to talk in depth with the lead detective, who was Glenn Laurie. And one of the remarkable things he said to me was, do you realise they planned the killings in prison? And that was completely new to me. Um, and in preparation for that, James Miller is actually not his real name. His original name, surname was J-U-S-T. He changed it because, as he told Glenn, he anticipated his name could be sullied in the future and he didn't want his siblings and the rest of the family to be associated with that name. No, because he's quite he was quite close to his family, wasn't he? Uh, later on, after the killings, in that strange period of time, he he lived with his sisters. In fact, all through the time, even when he and, and Chris were together, he spent a lot of time living with his sisters. He did. So when so he was James Oliver was released from prison first. Um, this is early nineteen seventy six. He got a job at Simpsons Pope, which was a white appliance factory. Um, he lived with, and this is crucial, one of his sisters at Albert Park. Um, he lived in the back room. Um, he found a job for Worrell, which was important as a part of a parole lease. And that was to clean clothes, which is something, dry cleaning, something he'd been doing in prison. So in October 1976, much to James' joy, Chris was released. Now, in the first couple of meetings, uh, Worrell stands Miller up, and again, I think that's part of psychopathic traits of his, but eventually they hook up. And over the next short while, they both embark on a killing spree, seven women in seven weeks. Our last four of them were in six days, so it was quite a frenzy. I make a comparison with Worrell with... Dennis Rader, who's probably more famously known to most people as BTK, which was self-named. 
following torture kill, which is exactly what we're always doing. He was married. Um, his wife had no no idea. Um, his, he had kids. They did not have any idea. His wife caught Dennis a couple of times wearing some strange outfits. Ted Bundy had a girlfriend, mm. and others did too. So, you know, they compartmentalise their lives. So it, it's not unusual to quarrel in that sense. Um, he certainly did have sexual relations with what I call so-called girlfriends. Um, he had complete contempt for them. Um, he just leached off them, basically. <clears throat> He's best described as pansexual, so he, he, had, he didn't differentiate who he had sex with at all. He had sex with drag queens, men, women, the whole gamut. Yeah, and I suspect that there'd be some jealousy in there from Miller as well that would have been, again, part of the push and pull of the power dynamic between them at any given time. Miller admits to driving around when Worrell was in the back seat of the car, having sex with girls, either consensual or, or sexually assaulting women. They didn't pick up women and take them to um, places for consensual sex. That just never happened. Mm. Um, so the, the ones that he did witness, and he talked about Veronica Knight when they were driving up to Truro, mm. she was orally raped by Worrell. That's while Miller was driving, just in the back seat behind them. So the first murder was Veronica Knight, 23rd of December, 1976. Tanya Kenny, 2nd of January, 1977. And then the 21st of January, which is Julia. The important thing, there's a big break between the 2nd and the 3rd. They actually had a close call. So they, they were parked um, on a road. Um, there'd been a lot of break-ins in that area and the police approached them thinking again, they might have had something to do with it. Mm. They denied it, but their car was actually searched, believe it or not. But nothing was nothing was picked up, but they were spooked. Um, so that's, and then between the 3rd and the 4th, that's from the 21st of January to the 6th of February. Again, look, at, again, it's an opportunity game. It's mm. a deadly opportunity game. They probably trawled the streets and didn't find an appropriate victim. Mm. on the day. Um, so in between these days, I was surely looking for someone and didn't, didn't find them potentially that they could, again, bundle into the car. You're right. They Clearly he chose perfect victims, for want of a better expression, because nobody ever did come forward and say, oh, my God, those guys approached me, tried to get me to go into the car, tried to give me a lift home, tried to... Did they? Absolutely. And there was only one time, and that's the third time with Juliet, mm. um, that anyone actually saw anything. Um, so she, Juliet, left a hotel with another male and it, she was going home, so they walked to the bus stop. Mm. He left her just before the bus stop at a crossing. Um, she, she walked on. He turned around to have another look and he saw a Holden wagon or Valiant wagon stopping at the bus stop and he saw her get in um, and he, he described seeing two silhouettes there but that was at some distance and he wasn't completely sure of the car so yes I mean they had 100 percent success rate and never been seen or virtually and never been caught um hitchhiking is an interesting one which mm. is what they're blamed for um Glenn Laurie who 
did the case and obviously knew Miller well. Mm. He, he never met Worrell. Um, he believes that they were all bundled in, and that's certainly possible, even in the middle of the CBD. And there's potentially a lot of people around. My take is it was probably a mixture of the two, um, abduction and hitchhiking. We know Tania definitely hitchhiked and, we, uh, and Juliet did. But if you take Deborah Lamb, who was the, the last one, why on earth would have she got into a car on that day? Um, she had just got engaged. She got an engagement ring from her boyfriend, Mitch. Mm. She, that very night, was told Mitch she was going to announce the engagement to her parents. Why on earth would have she voluntarily gone into a car? It doesn't make sense. No, um, not with these guys, I don't think. Yeah. The ruse they used was, and even if they didn't use the ruse, people could assume this was the case, that... Miller told them he was the uncle of Worrell, um, and that would have made them a little bit more comfortable having an older guy there, I think. Um, one of the cars they used, they borrowed off one of Worrell's girlfriends that had baby seats in it, uh, baby seat in the back. So that would have, they wouldn't have even needed to say something, even if they did, you know, it's my kid or a relative's kid or so on. So that would have put them at ease. Uh, look, again, everyone who met him, were utterly unthreatened by them. You know, they all say the same thing, completely likable. There's absolutely no reason to believe what, you know, what subsequently occurred. Once they were in the car, though, it quickly turned into the absolute nightmare scenario where they were, before they knew it, because Adelaide's a small town now, let alone back then in the 70s, before they knew it, they were leaving town. That car was heading out of town. And into the countryside, um, no matter where they were told they were heading initially, most times it was heading out of town. And you reckon, or I mean, it gets to the point where I think Miller admits that the women walked to the site where they were murdered because they, they figured out early on that they were too heavy to carry. This is what Miller said, and that's credible. And he said... Um, so the, the deeds were done in the car. Um, Miller said that. Um, with Veronica, she was killed in the car. Um, but they changed the MO because they, they found that she was too heavy to carry. Because mm, initially Miller was trying to make out, wasn't he, that, oh, I mean, I just went away for a walk every time. And then by the time I got back, oh, he'd killed them and I didn't even know he was going to. I just thought he was going to have sex with them. That was his initial story. Which is completely untrue. Yeah. I mean, you know, even if they're a Petura, if you go up there, it's still the same as it was all those years ago, Swamp Road. It's still a, there's nothing around. And Miller had walked three kilometres away from what was happening. And that's not true. He was he was on the spot. But it assumed that he had walked away. Glenn said you could hear a mouse fart from three kilometres. There was just nothing up there. And still and still nothing. There's no hardly any houses up there. Um, he could have heard any sort of noise, whether that pleasurable or non-pleasurable. Um, it didn't happen. As I say, when he cracked, it took five hours um, of interviewing. He said we drove them straight to the point where they died. So we took, you know, five of them up to Truro. They died there. We took Deborah Lamb to Port Gawler. She died there. 
Um, the only exception was Tanya. They went to the Albert Park rental, um, which was temporarily unoccupied because Miller's sister had left there. Um, and Miller still had the front door key. So, and they'd both been in there and knew it well. <clears throat> so that Tanya was murdered in that house. And she was subsequently moved to Wingfield and buried out there. I live in North Carolina and I listen to you guys religiously and love, love, love your show. I just listened to the episode with Jim Cosgrove and I was mind blown to hear this story and this guy from the States talking about Merle's Inlet because I have lived one town over from there. I've been there many, many times over the years and it was just crazy because I've never even heard of this story. I am dying to read this book and I just think you guys are incredible and thanks for everything you're doing. Take care. Bye-bye. Hello, Heather. It is lovely to hear from you. Heather is talking about an exclusive episode she heard on Australian True Crime Plus, because sometimes it's plus a story not from Australia. You can hear the episode she's talking about and a brand new one in a couple of days by signing up to Australian True Crime Plus using the link in the show notes or by swinging by Apple Podcasts and joining us there. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. 
seven women and seven weeks, the last four and six days. So they decided to have a break. They drive, I'm going to say they, Miss Miller, Worrell and Deborah Skews. She was a friend of theirs, was she, Deborah? She became a friend. Um, Miller went round one day to her house to see her husband, who was a criminal. He doesn't state why he did that, um, quite possibly for criminal activities. That would be my assumption. He, he wasn't there. He ended up in jail later. Um, he talked to her and they befriended her. She was a hairdresser. She actually cut Laurel's long hair. He had long hair during these murders, very long hair, um, right at the end, a few days before. Um, so she went up for reasons only known to her, for a break, I gather. They went up to Mount Gambia. When they got there, there was an air show up there and Laurel had worked in the Air Force in WA. So Miller suggested they go to the show. Um, they went in. There were $6 rides, which Miller suggested they do. Um, it was a pretty ordinary show. And Worrell had one of these tantrums, got sick of it and said, we're going home. And that's what happened. So when they were driving back, Miller started initially driving, but then Worrell took over the wheel and he was drinking alcohol. Um, it became quite abusive. He was, according to Miller, he was known to speed and no one could stop him. There's also ball tyres, combination of ball tyres on this car. This uh, car was a, a killing van. They used multiple, but this is one they used in the last murders, um, which is actually a borrowed car, which they never gave back. Uh, he rolled it, basically. He was speeding at Kingston. He rolled it. Um, Laurel and Skews uh, were thrown out of the car and died instantly. Um, Miller was able to stay in the car. He had a broken collarbone. He was devastated, as he would later say, this is the end of my life. He rang the last girlfriend of Worrell's, who I call Miss D, um, who was with an only council worker colleague of theirs. Um, can you come and pick me up? So they went to, they went up there to the hospital. He's lost his home because his home at that stage, this is Miller, was a car. He was basically living out and they both were. This is Worrell and, and he's got nowhere to go. Um, so they go to that morning, this is early in the morning, to a share flat at the council colleague. This is where Miller takes the girlfriend aside, takes her in the backyard and says, do you really know about Worrell? Um, she said, yeah. So do you know he was in for rape? She said, I don't believe that. He eventually actually got a news clipping. He cut it out and gave it to her. So she, eventually she was convinced. Um, and, but he continued on this conversation and said, you probably wouldn't have liked him as much if you really knew his real self. And she said, what do you mean? And he said to her that uh, we did some girls in, um, and he described it west of Blanchetown. So Blanchetown's just east of Swamp Road, which is where the killings occurred. And they, some of them deserved it. They were rags. This is a term he used multiple times. Now, she held on to that knowledge 
for a couple of years. Well, this is it. I mean, he so he started confessing. He's confessed to Worrell's supposed girlfriend straight after Worrell's death. He did. He did. And then he told someone else and they passed it on as well. Um, so they found, I mean, they found the first body. This is Veronica's on the 20th of April, 78. Mm. And it's not until Tania's found, which is the second one. This is on 15th of April, 1979. So you're, you know, two years after the first death. Um, and then they, they find two more because they do a search. They realize because these two bodies, Tanya and Veronica, are close together. They do a search and they find two more. So they got four. Now, this is when there's a lot of publicity and a tip comes in that this girlfriend might be someone that they might want to talk to. So they approach her, and this is the she tells the story of Miller and Morrill, um, and the rest is history. And she was even reluctant. I mean, it was it was hard for her, I suppose, that she'd been tied up with a, a serial killer, basically. Um, yeah, maybe she was embarrassed. That that might have been part of it. She had a sexual relationship with him, and um, and she'd be used by him. Yeah. But still, over two years, I would have thought the right thing to do, especially when all the publicity came through, once there was four skeletons, mm. um, was to say something. But she, her argument was that Miller had told her that Worrell was responsible and he was innocent and Worrell was dead. So what was the point of dobbing Worrell in, which people can draw their own conclusions on the logic of that? Look, there are... A lot of people behaving in extraordinary ways in this story, not least Miller, who when police knock on his door and he goes in for his interview, he caved pretty quickly, didn't he? It took a while. He first denied that he even knew Morrison. He didn't know him that well. Um, He said that he didn't really need to pick up women for sex because they get them, which is exactly, that was exactly right. That's interesting too. I I like that you kind of without overstating it, it's almost an historical relic now, that argument. But it needs to be highlighted, I think, this idea that handsome men don't rape women because they don't need to. Uh, Ted Bundy was the real game changer for that. You know, up, up to that time, because it's around the same vintage, mid-70s, you know, these... Well, they weren't even called serial killers. as was until about 1980. They were called mass killers or something else. They were thought to be, you know, ugly deviants, low intelligence, all that sort of stuff. But here's, here's Ted, who was a lawyer in training, suave, um, you know, involved politically at one stage as well. Yeah, people use that defence a lot. Either he's too handsome to be a rapist or she's too ugly to be a rape victim. Absolutely. And so it's obviously a wrong one. Yeah, it's hideous, um, but but it wasn't that long ago. And as I say, without overstating it, you've um you've kind of reminded us of those things and how recently those attitudes were held. So that's another thing about this book that's so good. So so Miller, I, I kind of felt like he caved pretty quickly, but but you're saying he didn't when, when he got into the interview room with the police. And by the way, you, the detective here is magic, isn't he, Laurie? He was awesome. And he was a little bit different. He was... Yeah, broke the mould. Bit of a bohemian. Um, and he 
Miller was expecting to be bashed up because that had been pre his previous experience, but Glenn let him go because he made lots of mistakes during the interview. You know, he said that, yeah, I, I helped drag Veronica Knight's body across fences and so on and dump her, which obviously incriminated himself. Um, and he'd done a study of psychology early in his police oh. career. He just let, he let him go as they incriminate himself and then spill over. Um, and then they, the crucial thing is Glenn said they were, they'd looked at the missing person reports belatedly. I mean, this is something, this is part of the disgrace. I mean, when the Keaters, it's Juliet's parents, had gone to the police when she disappeared on the 21st January. Yeah. She's not one to disappear. She's not like that. And the police officer told them, well, I hear that from everyone. You know, she'll come back. She's a runaway. Um, and they offered at that stage to go in front of the cameras, get some publicity. Um, and they denied them. And the irony is in early 1979, this is before even the second skeleton was found. Um, Giles, who was a detective, had started going through the missing personal reports and he saw a piece, he was the first one to see a pattern. So he actually went to Ankita's and he said, you know, it's a possibility she was murdered. Um, would you like to get some publicity? <laughs> Which again, this is two years too late, basically. Um, and she did. And there was a newspaper article. Um, when that newspaper article came out, Miller fled. Um, he went north, um, hitchhiking with a relative. They got as far as Brisbane and came back because it, it sort of died. Nothing really happened until the game changer was on the 15th of April, 79, when Sylvia's body was discovered. And that's when... You know, they decided they had to, they got horses in there, they got 80, 80 cadets that did a search, and they quickly discovered two more. So once they found the four, um, Glenn did another search of himself, of the missing persons report. He came up with three more, all in the same location, all around the same time period. So this was crucial in his interview because they suspected, more than suspected, that there were three others. And but they didn't know where they were. So there's only one person in the world that knew that, and that was Miller. So once during that long interview we cracked, um, they asked Miller if he could actually take them to the other three, and he did. Now, if he hadn't, if he had clammed up, they would have been potentially lost forever. They were in those three were in slightly different locations, obviously, from the ones they did the search. One was on the road a bit further north off the Stuart Highway, and the other two were in completely different locations. Your book starts with this imagery, and I've had the opportunity to ask some old coppers about these kinds of car trips, these kinds of road trips that they're just incredible to me to, to imagine being in the car with someone like James Miller who is directing you to uh, a crime scene or to, to the site where they've left the remains of somebody. Yeah, they, they drive up, they pass Swamp Road because Juliet 
was north of so if you, the Sturt Highway runs west to east, and then Swamp Road's on the south side, running north to south. Um, but there was a road just slightly north of Sturt Highway, um, Bell Boundary Road, I think it was. Um, it was on that, so as they, were, they actually drove past the entrance to Swamp Road on the way, and when I said to them, "That's where four, the four are." They go past, they actually overshoot where they're meant to go. They come back, they drive. He directs them, Mrs. Miller, um, in the dark into a farmhouse area. He gets out, it's winter, he's, he's crunching, you know, the frost on the, on the ground. He sweeps the, the torch over. Um, he picks up a bush at a distance. He says, that's where it is. So they pile back in drive there and quickly walk up to Juliet, who was the photo, that the famous photo which was on the cover is her described as curled up as a cat. Well, I would describe it as like a baby. Yeah, it it looks like a man who's carrying, he's carrying her like a baby and yeah. we can see her little shoes. Yeah, like her sneakers. Her and... sneakers, and she's wrapped in a plastic bag of some sort, but because well, you use the word mummified, I think, because of the, the soil or... This is the middle of summer, peak of summer. Um, she, she was covered with branches, so, you know, roaming animals didn't have easy access to her, so she was partially preserved. Now, her mother wrote a very eloquent book, A Long, long, long Way to Chura, about her life, um, how she wanted to be a surgeon, a doctor, um, and that was obviously stolen from her. So who was control? And this is a this is a question Glenn has postulated. You know, was it all Worrell? This is what Miller was said because he was in one lot. Glenn found Miller to be extremely manipulative. You know, what he was saying is untrue. He lied um, about taking them to other places having sex and then walking away and so on. And that, that was established, obviously, by his initial confession. You know, we took them straight there. Um, the other thing that Miller emphasised was that, you know, he was just a petty theft, a thiever. You know, he stole sunglasses and just bits and pieces, you know, the old carjacking, car theft. But the thing he failed to mention is what happened in 1959. So he was a gang rapist. He was the head of a gang that raped a very young teenager. They picked him up on the street who to take him, he wanted to live time. They offered to do that. They drove off. Um, Miller turned around to him and said, we're the police. Uh, if you don't cooperate with us, we're going to take you to the boys' reformatory. And now everyone knew what that sort of threat was in those days. Has the two accomplices raped this guy? boy he was very young he was about 14 drove off then miller said it's my turn and he raped him so this is there's airy parallels between them and what happened you know 1976 and 1977 so miller was charged with uh, some of the murders convicted yeah yeah but was he charged with all seven um not not veronica as i said because they couldn't, they weren't going to be able to prove that he wasn't aware of the first one. But he, my, my understanding, he was charged and convicted of six. 
He was convicted of, with six of the murders, so um, at least the court agreed that he absolutely was culpable. He ended up in, in Yatala prison, right, for the rest of his life. He did. He died in 2008 um, of natural causes, which was an opportunity his victims obviously didn't have. He had, he had hepatitis C and prostate cancer, I think, at that stage. But he wrote his memoir. I, I'm just absolutely spun out by that. I mean, and someone wrote it for him. Like, you know what I mean? The yeah. journalist wrote it with him. It's still in quite a few of the libraries. So it got out there. Is it? Um, absolutely. Oh, and, and people still sell it. I mean, it's secondhand now. It's not in print, but it's still viable. There's two parts of the book, as I described. The one's not dealing with the murders. Most of the material I could verify except he didn't, he used fake names. Um, that associated with the murders was unfeasible. So if we look at Deborah, Deborah Lamb. She was the last victim. Um, so I talked to her daughter, who was a baby at that stage, and her granddaughter. Um, unfortunately, her daughter died recently, quite young, of cancer. So Deborah again, was even by her parents. She went to special schools. Her parents um, regarded her retarded. Um, again, it was a completely wrong diagnosis because what the family told me now is autism runs in the family. So she had some sort of spectrum disorder. She became pregnant. She was unaware of that up till five months. Uh, when she told her mother, it was quite assertive. She told her that she can't have it, um, <clears throat> that she would have to terminate it. And this was Nikki who was subsequently born, um, that she couldn't look after it. She subsequently had him. She had a boyfriend, Mitch, who was going to be engaged to, and she was going to announce the engagement on the, the day she was murdered. Um, they had met at a church. All Deborah wanted was to have a family and a small house. That was her entire wish. Um, she ended up at Port Gawler in basically a, was a wooden framed um, corrugated iron clad box, basically. Um, it could have been a toilet. So, I mean, that, that might have been the final indicator. The dignity, as I say, being put in a shit can sarcophagus and buried there. Um, I can talk about um, Tania and Kenny. She was feisty, fun, precocious. She was advanced physically and mentally for her age. This comes from her best friend who I talked to at the time, who spent basically the last 48 hours together. Um, her friend tells a story of going around to Tania's place and listening to music. Um, and this, this really hit home with me because I was about Tania's age. Um, Hotel California came out in early 77 and they used to, this is her friend and Tania used to listen to it endlessly. You know, the title track and you can tell all those famous songs. That rang a chord for me because my brother bought it an LP back in those days. Um, so I, I did exactly the same. And, and the, the friend just describes an ordinary teenager's life, you know, uh, listening to music, 
you know, pouting and all that sort of stuff. Smoking a little bit of dope, nothing serious at all. Um, she went down to a New Year's Eve party at Chiton Rocks, which is southeast of Adelaide, because that's where the, the big party was going to be. Um, she told her parents she was going to go to a party at Brighton. So she told a little lie. She didn't actually go there. Her friends were going to be at this other one. This is from St. Peter's School. And some some guy she really adored called John. So they went there. They had a, a great time. They party. Uh, they then went to the friend's beach house. Early the next morning, they crashed. Um, the, the mother of the girlfriend said, do your parents know where you are? No. So she rang home. They said, you've got to come home straight away. So the next morning, she was put on a bus. She got to Adelaide. And she ended up at Wingfield. Um, again, she was a known hitchhiker. Everyone did in those days. But the main danger, and they've done the studies from hitchhiking, is actually getting injured in a road accident. It's certainly not being picked up by a serial killer. Sylvia Pittman, she was the, the second find, the second skeleton. They had no inkling that there was any issue. They dismissed Veronica's disappearance. But somehow, she was going to Melbourne on the train. They rationalised she somehow got to sell orientated and walked out on, on Swamp Road. It, it absolutely made no sense. There were four people who went for a holiday up at Renwick, which is sort of north-east of Swamp Road. Um, they drove back in a convoy of two. They swung left onto Swamp Road and they told a story in court that they were looking for lizards. Oh, yes, that's right, yeah. <clears throat> um, I talked to one of them. He said, um, what we're doing is illegal. <laughs> so, so I won't say because he didn't want me to say, but people can make their own conclusions. But anyway, they, they found Sylvia. So she worked in a boutique. She wanted to be a model. And... On that day that she disappeared, she went to see a girlfriend. Um, she came back and then she went to see another girlfriend and then she went to the CBD. And obviously, uh, Worrell and Miller picked her up and took her out to Chura. Vicky Howell um, was a little bit unusual in the sense she was older. Um, again, for Worrell, his preference was, was teenagers. She was 26. She worked, she was a nurse. She worked at the home for the incurables. So that incurables actually had kids um, and older people there. She had two children. So this is the other thing. They didn't just kill these seven women. They children, you know, they left behind um, progeny, basically, kids. She had separated from her first husband and had two kids, and she was living with another. A man who she had one child with. Uh, the story on the night was she overheard a conversation between her de facto and someone else who was making disparaging comments. She thought it was in relation to her, but it was apparently in relation to this de facto sister. So she penned, she had some harsh words with him um, and left a note saying, you don't love me. She walked out. She had spina bifida, mild and... This was something that was picked up by Miller because he talks about that. They could see she had a bit of a funny walk. But they knew because he said that she talked about it on the way to Chura about the fact she had two children. They knew when they took her up and killed them that she actually left 
well, she left three behind. She had two original and then another one. Um, and again, look, it's not just the effect on the first generation that's left. The second, when I talked to the granddaughter of Deborah, she said to me that she had to co-parent her mother during most of the early years. Um, she said to me, uh, to this day, I don't know if I'll ever have children because I don't want them to go through what my mother did. So again, we just need to bear in mind the ripple effects. They still you know, ripple to this day, basically. Thank you to our guest, Jeff Plunkett, whose book Death Row at Truro is out now. Jeff's previous book, The Whiskey A Go-Go Massacre, is currently unavailable, but I suspect that when the inquest is over, it might be re-released, and we'll certainly keep you updated. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime, recorded at The Hub Australia. We'll be back next week. This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the Acast Creator Network. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Acast anbefaler. Mit navn er Anders Morgenthaler. Over for mig sidder Roald Bergmann. Vi har lavet en ny podcast, der hedder Dopaminklubben. Og Dopaminklubben er en klub, hvor ADHD er fucking sjovt, og hvor det griner. Det behøver ikke at være super alvorligt. Vi skider skidesrætter alle de der podcast og forklarer mig nederen der. Vi gør grin med vores ADHD. Mulig ADHD. Ja, vi udreder mig, fordi nogen siger, at jeg har det. Jeg ved det ikke rigtigt, det finder vi ud af. Vi har i hvert fald lavet vedmål. Ind og lytte til Dopaminklubben. Hver uge udkommer vi. Der laver vi sjov og spas med at have den her vidunderlige dopaminmangel. 
If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so you know we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.